Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. Today, our guest is Mark Richman, who is the owner of Skeleton Key in St. Louis, an FBA platinum company. And Mark, you've been a developer for 20 years as a VI. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We're going to talk about uh, your DevCon session that's coming up, which is practical techniques for improving application performance. Building really fast databases is a, is a subject close to my heart. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about, and it's not FileMaker topic, so I have a really silly one, which is this game I've been playing on my iPad. You have an iPad, Mark? I do. And love it? Yeah, I love it. I don't get to use it as much as I'd like. At some point, I, uh, I run out of steam looking at a screen, even a beautiful screen like that. I know. I, I play with mine like at night when I'm watching TV or having it around the office if I've got a couple free minutes to spare. I've been playing this game, Plants vs. Zombies HD. It's very addicting. Yeah, I've uh, games can do it for me. I've got uh, young kids and lots of consoles that get l- no attention yet, but I know that they'll be burned to the ground when these guys get older. But they're starting <laughs> to figure out the controllers, and uh, I think if I had one more platform to play on, it, I would probably waste a lot of time. Yeah, it's bad. I'm sure it's a lot of fun, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and now I have some friends getting back into World of Warcraft Cataclysm. I'm going, oh, man, I don't know if I want to do that again. <laughs> uh, too much to commit. And you have a dead serious, it's not FileMaker. What's yours? Uh, so, like most of us, I, I'm an, I was an independent developer forever. You know, maybe I worked at different companies and did this on the side. Maybe I did this full time for a variety of customers or one big customer. And at some point, a number of years ago, I decided it was time to um, to capture some of the uh, other business that was happening around me, stuff I had skills for, like networking and and IT stuff that was part of the FileMaker solutions, but that I didn't have the bandwidth to do by myself if I was also coding. Um, so mm-hmm. I, you know, formed a company and. Uh, hired employees and uh, paired and partnered with a, a friend who was very good on the um, IT and hardware side of things. And, uh, and we kind of just started doing the same thing for the same customers. Long story short, I think like a lot of developers out there who are either have done that or who are in some stage of doing that or envision that they're not really sure where this career is going to go for them. Are they going to join an existing shop? Or are they going to put up their own shingle? Um, the business of being a, a FileMaker development company isn't something that gets a lot of conversation. It, it, it happens around the edges, but it's almost like a taboo of some kind. And, and right, I think so basically it's spending a significant amount of effort thinking about just the business aspect, business plans, goals, you know, serious, really real stuff. And I think I also in early in my career, I didn't – even though I set some goals, they were kind of silly looking back. Um, now I'm forming – some new companies and hiring consultants to take us through the process of, of agreeing about everything and coming up with a, a P&L well in advance, <laughs> you know, a, a targeted, obviously, P&L and, and balance sheet to sort of expect what's going to be coming in the next couple of years. Yeah, the whole concept of budgeting and planning. Um, and the funny thing about this is this is not a problem that's unique to the FileMaker development community. This is a problem that most business owners have. In fact, you hear these statistics about the small number of, 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 of small businesses that survive in the first year or five years. And, and if you have a business that's really not just you, but you, know, you with other resources, uh, bricks and mortar or people or health plan or any other kinds of stuff that businesses accumulate as they grow – um, you know that you probably someone has slapped you on the back at some point and said, "Hey, well done. You survived the first year. Most don't. And hey, you survived the fifth year. Almost none do. And okay, great. Now you've made it out into the open prairie. What are you going to do? And surviving isn't really good enough in many ways. It's it's kind of a waste of your time. Um, right. So I'm not, I was never very ambitious, but um, I think that 
uh, actually getting consultation or help in whatever form it comes. We happen to use open book management, which is kind of a, a nice uh, concept that came out of a business and a great story in Springfield, Missouri. But it really is just basically learn to teach everybody to understand how a business operates, get everyone to understand a P&L and a balance sheet, including you, the owner, and then um, and budget and plan and get everyone involved in that process and give them a, a reason to care, give them a stake in what you do, profit sharing of some kind, a good bonus plan. Make sure that people feel engaged and they, like you, will suddenly you know lead together to, to run your business like a business. It's allowed us as a company, Skeleton Key, to make significant gains and turn ourselves around um, and and as a result, we're able to now plan what we want to do more effectively in this community and as a business in general. Great. Let's move on to our geeky topic. Cool. So something that I've really cared a lot about is building databases that run fast. So one goal that I have in the main application I work on, which is this public health thing, is to have no process that a user does take longer than a second or two, um, with the exception of like really big reports that don't get run very often. And so there's a lot of architecture that I build so that no portal takes longer than that to load, that regular searches and, and loading records and just navigating from place to place is really fast. That's really only one aspect of performance. Of, but I want to talk about sort of how the WAN and how other aspects of it. And there's, I, I think there's probably a lot that you know about, the, about how FileMaker data moves over the network. Yeah, well, I, I have to say, I, I don't underestimate the value of the the core uh, goal, you, it's, it's a great transition from the previous topic we were covering about you know, planning in your business is planning how you want your application to behave so that you have some benchmark to, to gauge it against. We had a, a great experience that I think really opened me up to this entire concept of, of performance of applications, which happened to be a, a customer, up, uh, a medical customer up in uh, the Northwest uh, near you, and they needed um, a minimum, sorry, maximum three-second response time for um, most normal database operations. That was sort of their general architectural benchmark, and we were like, okay. Mm -hmm. We had to come up with a way to show that the application we had, if used by an, um, various types of user loads, working, doing various types of common techniques, that they would somehow um, not overwhelm the FileMaker 10 server. This was back in FileMaker 10. So we designed a way to open up a number of you know, virtual sessions and get a lot of activity going sort of in step or out of step or with various types of wait times. And it was a fantastic solution that Greg Lane, one of our developers, came up with to measure the performance. And we found that we could bring a server to its knees but not kill it um, by synchronizing things in a, in a it'll never happen kind of way. And we could um, simulate normal behavior in a system um, in such a way as to really get a good sense of which operations might be slow. What was the technique you used to bring a server to its knees? You get a whole bunch of sessions connected to a FileMaker server mm -hmm. by whatever mechanism you do that, um, each being an independent user effectively connected. Right. And then you, uh, you have them all start doing the same things at the same time, like everybody go to this list view and everybody uh, do a find. And everybody execute the find exactly the same moment, which means you know some packets get in there some millisecond quicker, but they're all queuing up. Um, at 10 was, I believe, the first multi-threaded server. The shift into 10 was a, a change in how the server would uh, take advantage of the additional processors for certain types of activities. Regardless, the server was still involved in things like finds and returning results, and we could get so much activity queued up um, by having effectively what was you know all these drones hitting within microseconds of each other doing right. these intensive uh, but normal activities that it could take 10 minutes 
for a single operation to return a result. And it was ridiculous. And at the same time, we knew that this would never happen in the real world unless it was a denial of service attack of some kind, right? That's what we basically simulated. Uh, overwhelming traffic all synchronized to, uh, to bring a server to its knees. Mm-hmm. And the, the, ma- the fantastic thing to us was that the server never died. So we emphasized in our report that we created irreproducible conditions that would never appear in the wild and, uh, and demonstrated the server would not fail. Uh, then we turned our attention to um, randomizing uh, within normal wait times, you know, half a second, a second, uh, between various types of activities. So things got out of sync mm-hmm. um, and demonstrated that um, all those operations worked within like, 2.9 seconds or lower on average. Um, some were very small and some were up to the limit. But again, um, that would be more normal conditions. Right. And we did a number of rounds of that at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 users to uh, identify that it would scale properly. And that was proof for the customer that this was a solution that could work for them. And that got us past a significant step in the negotiations and so, the contracting so of the solution. So what did you learn from that? Was there like a sweet spot of how, how many seconds have to go by between big user requests? No, we didn't. I don't. I think for the. I think when since this was a few years ago, and it was sort of opening my eyes to the the, the merging of these two ideas. The idea of the application as you designed it to work, thinking that you know power was limitless, and you know everything was local on the LAN, and everybody had fast new computers, um, to the idea that wow, we've got six gigs of data, and um, people are working over thready networks, and there's hundreds of them on there. At this point, we were just trying to demonstrate that this particular solution could do what it wanted. We weren't thinking, mm-hmm. oh, what other kinds of data can we pull out of this? That started coming along, I think, over the next year. We, uh, there was a lot of conversations about what that showed us and how reliable were those results and could we reproduce these for other kinds of uh, applications and what did that... We didn't really go in and have to fix anything, I guess what I'm saying, because the system did perform well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was a Citrix-based solution, we knew it was all going to effectively end up local in the long run. They just wanted to see that it would scale well with the user load and we didn't build anything that was flawed in some simple way. Right. But we saw that, wow, this most customers don't have the the dollars to do a Citrix solution. Most don't have the expertise to try out 2x uh, reliably at first. Some of them just want to get their people connected over port 5003. Right, but everybody gets to benefit from the the knowledge gained from this. So, uh, boy, a whole bunch of questions are coming up in my head as we talk about this. What are the big things that really hit a FileMaker server hard? Is it like list view or portals or a, a query or a sort or what are the really big ones? So let's define um, hitting a FileMaker server hard. Um, there's a number of different things that a FileMaker server is. Um, there is whatever it thinking it's doing uh, that could be responding to requests, uh, the actual application layer. You know, so if you have an e under part of my background it was in networking, and so mm-hmm. while I don't have command of the OSI model and all layers seven stuff, I know that there were layers, and I know I remember that there's these sort of surface layers we see: the user interface, the application, the operating right. system, and then way down deep, there's the MAC address uh, on the wire, and there's the um, the networking IP and the range and the subnetting and the routing, right? Uh, and then there's wrappers and blah blah blah. So sure. the point is, is that. A FileMaker server is also operating at many layers. There's these services that um, and, and uh, that it's providing specific things like you know uh, processing a find so it can return a list of IDs or processing a value list so it can return a list of IDs or processing a relationship so it can return a list of IDs. There's I think it's involved in sorting, but I always get stuck on sorting. It's my it's one of those those blind spots for me. Well, it's, it depends it's, upon it's, what kind of session it is, right? So if it's an IWP versus Something you know, then then the sorting might happen in different places in different circumstances, Correct. and I don't know what those algorithms are. Yeah, so there's a number of, of of things that it does, 
and, and obviously a lot of it has to do with um, the indexes and finding. I think that's its, its strongest suit is that the ability to do parallel searches. But long story short, I think there's other layers that it's working on, obviously, as well. There's the network interfaces, which are processing packets, uh, possibly from other activities on the server or just general network traffic that's bumping against it, as well as the actual data that's coming to and from uh, the, the Famicu users. There's whatever encryption might be going on. Um, if you've enabled SSL, that's having to take place at the network layer to wrap those packets up or at the application layer to wrap them up before they get put on the network. Um, there's the uh, the various networks that connect the users um, that are uh, transforming it, uh, the data. So that's sure. going to have not effect really on the service performance, but on other things. There's the, the hardware itself. Is um, is it uh, 10,000 RPM drives, 7,200 RPM drives, right. 15,000 SSD? There's how wait, much wait, RAM you is mean? 5,400 RPM drives running on a Mac Mini. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot of great ways to run. I mean, the best thing about FileMaker is, is, has been in many ways that it's so tolerant of where it will let you run it, and it's so good for running for long, extended periods of time. That's something that has allowed us all to take for granted the underlying infrastructure that is integral to how it can perform. Yeah. So, if you had a lot of other things running on that server, if you've got um, not enough bandwidth to that server, if um, your network is poorly constructed or architected, if your users are running older systems, these things can all also constrain um, the server's performance, not just how many processors and how much RAM it is and what the gigahertz is on the... Oh, yeah, geeky stuff. Like one IT guy was telling me that dual 100 megabit cards was faster than a single one gigabit card in lots of cases for latency and stuff like that. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so a main point of my session last year on, on WAN performance was just establishing the ground rules that... There's other ways to measure a FileMaker system than um, just what's faster um, in a loop or a you know, recursive right. tail versus think, recursive front. Yeah, but see, those are hugely important for ar architecting your database. But then the other things um, are what actually happens on the wire. You know, most of the testing I do, I'm doing uh, connected solo, and I can, I can do a lot of benchmarks and tests and time things. But it is really hard to have a tool that, that you have 50 users hitting it at once. What things jumped out at you as, as being uh, heavier or lighter on server loads than you would have guessed? Finds versus resolving a relationship? Any difference? Yeah. No, no. I didn't do those kinds of tests. Um, and I'm not sure that I will. I might. Uh, I think, again, I feel like when I get into those kinds of comparisons, what I'm doing is um, – uh, let's put it this way. Part of what I'm trying to do is focus on as – objective uh, an analysis of the performance of a solution as I can. So the idea here, like last year, I was, when I kept saying, look, this is very much about network packets that move. So when I go to a list view um, and I've got a, a wide table with 100 fields, mm -hmm. I get all the data from all those fields for all the rows I can see. And then as I scroll, it prefetches and, and, and here's how much data is actually coming down the pipe to the client. So all I know is that that's like an avalanche of data. I'm going to call that an avalanche and say that's my benchmark. I know that if I had a narrow table and I only had the fields that I needed on the list view and then all the other fields for that record, especially ones that were large, were in some other table, then none of those would load and I'd bring down the total volume of data by whatever portion I could. I could bring it down to a tiny sliver if I wanted to, just three fields in the list view. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of discussion around this last year. And it, the, sort of the recommendation that came out of it was using one-to-one -one relationships with parallel tables to store data that only represents a fraction of the records in the table. Uh, not the fraction of the records, a fraction of the fields for the records. So the idea is that you basically yeah, have, tiered, yeah. you have tiered tables. 
Um, it might be just two tiers, list view and detail. It might be list view detail and the fat stuff, like the large text blocks and blobs if it's a database that contains those. You know, and we talked about you know, container fields and how they take care of themselves in some ways, but you could do it with them too. The long story short is, is that if you – this is one technique, narrower tables, that was promoted by FileMaker engineers the previous year mm-hmm. – um, by John Thatcher in his sort of um, under the hood session, right. and I was just sort of testing it out um, as objectively as I could. Say, hmm, how much data does come down? Let's use some standard size records and let's see. And I was like, wow, I could, you could really significantly reduce the amount of data. So now let's say, of course, how you design your layout could make the layout draw really slowly, and how many rows you have in a portal will affect certain components of that. But let's really understand how data moves through these systems. And my thinking is that. No matter what you're doing, if you understand and can measure the difference between all of it coming down and half of it coming down, you can – it makes just perfect sense. I don't know. Less cars on the highway means those other cars move faster. And anything else I do on the upper layers will only benefit from that. But if there's only so much you can do on the user interface, there's only so much you can do in the FileMaker window to, um, to architect a system to perform well um, – on every layer of the model. So are there and, some big tips that come out of this, or things you, you recommend as a result of this knowledge? So the, the, the big tips that came out uh, from an architectural standpoint last year were um, narrow, narrow tables make a big difference. So designing your table structure and, and, and getting comfortable with the concept of tiered tables or one-to-one relationships mm-hmm. as, a, as a regular construct that you can rely on to really optimize solutions. It was to learn how your startup routine can have an impact on this thing and your initial display of layouts can have an impact. So basically your found set that if you can, if you can navigate to uh, zero found sets uh, when moving to data tables that don't need to start with, you know, I don't know, we've all seen databases where you go to the invoice screen and you're looking at the invoice from back when the database was minted in 2002 or mm-hmm. 1996. And then you're wondering, should I archive and sort and so on? Well, if you just start with none, that is actually very efficient from a FileMaker under the network performance. So starting with none, where you mean you have a script that says show all records, show omitted, and then you have no found records? Or do you mean having the file actually in single user mode closed with a, with a found set of none? Uh, I mean, probably the former. Um, but again, I, 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 that was one way you can achieve that. I said, you know, there's probably a number of ways you guys could come up with some neat tricks to, to uh, resolve to a found set of none in your starting layouts in a current mm-hmm. file and to manage that as new windows get opened because the other contexts all revert to all records. And until we have a control for that, um, there's probably six different great ways to script it or do some neat pet trick that does it. But mm-hmm. I didn't want to get into that. I said, if you can do that, and here's one way you could do it. Um, the benefit is that as you move to these layouts to do actions, um, you're narrowing down the amount of data that you're requiring the user to l- upload by default. So that was another big one, is just controlling your default found sets because that has a significant impact on leaking data to the user that they don't care about. Um, oh, yeah, good another one was managing uh, portal caches. This is one that kind of was controversial. And again, I, I was looking for theoretical proof of certain things, and I'm sure a more comprehensive model would either completely disprove or just add additional oil to the fire, gas to the fire. So what's a portal cache? So when you display portals with related data, uh, similar to a list view, but um, potentially more amplified depending on what you're doing, that data from those records is also downloaded to the, um, the client and cached. So if it's a portal with 100 rows behind it, but you're only seeing three, you're only going to get three rows. You're going to get all the fields, all the data and all the fields in that row. But we often use portals in conjunction with other things like subtotals and totals and summaries and counts and filters and filtered portals, um, which are new and neat, but 
potentially costly. And I wanted to say, oh, yeah, let's time. just show the, the difference between a portal all by itself, a portal with a sword at the relationship, a portal with a sword at the portal level, a portal with a filter at the relationship, a filter at the filter level, uh, you know, with a subtotal displayed, different formats of subtotal. Just, just understand what is the same lesson over and over, which is when do records load and how many fields of data go with that load and how many records. It's, you need to know three things. Know when your records load, know how many of them are loading, and know which fields are bringing along data. And if you understand those basic concepts and how these simple moves through the database, when I open, when I go to a new layout, when I uh, bring up records, period, narrow tables, when I show portals, when I choose which method to sort or filter a portal by, that these things cost. And so one of the ways I showed this controversial way was I did a simple uh, anchor buoy squids kind mm -hmm. of thing versus a, just a unified sort of three TOs as opposed to two sets of two. Right. And said, you know, let's see what happens. Um, we already know that there's bidirectionality and we already know that there's the ease of which you can copy and paste portals. And I'm not going to get into, you know, what I could get on a soapbox about unified mm -hmm. versus. I'm just going to say, let's compare these two simple techniques and do the exact same thing in both files. And of course, what happens is in, in, there's less data necessary to send again because that portal's already been cached from another perspective in the system. Right. So the data portion of the portal is available, even if the, um, yeah, the data, the data portion. If I had the five rows here and five rows there, the same five rows has already been sent. Right. So I looked at both the generally how portals behave versus um, list view and how I uh, say how portals behave versus filtered, sorted, and not sorted, and so on. And then I looked specifically at how they behave in two different relational models. And so that brought up the idea as another topic, which is to consider the fact that there may be uh, additional reasons why looking at a unified graph model makes sense because of the reduction in portal caches that it requires. Yeah, I'm still probably to never going to use it in any real solution. Yeah, see, this is why I don't want to get into the how <laughs> no, you develop No, I think it's great stuff. to get into it, because, <laughs> because the, the benefit of having control of your layouts and, and making it simpler to choose fields in the layout that are only related to the thing, to the context that you're in, far outweighs the performance hit. Here's my geeky comment. Ready? Yep. It's like, uh, it's like Transformers. It's a political decision if you're an Autobot or a Decepticon. <laughs> Everybody is very political in some degree, I think, about the, um, the, the what's the most important reason why a particular modeling true. approach yeah, makes it's, sense. It's My feeling is that it, it should be objectively analyzed. Yeah, so for they, me, I have to say that's, the, that's yeah. what I'm going to do because it's, it makes so much sense for me to use this, the naming conventions and a lot of the stuff I'm looking at, filemakerstandards.org. Here's my olive branch I have to give out to the community then because of the fire storm I, I intentionally, uh, I think, poked us to get, <laughs> which is um, I, I should do my best, and I will, I, I'll put it out here now that I'll try in my testing to, because, um, uh, again, this is only a quarter of the content for this year. This mm -hmm. year, the, the really focus is on, okay, let's just get into the basics here, and maybe I'll leave the most controversial one at the end or off the list. I'm not going to commit to that either way. And then let's talk about how hardware has a role, not just generally like I did last time at the end, but specifically right. let's give some time to that and show a couple of examples of where you might not get as much bang or you might get a lot of bang, like, like the example you said about teaming versus a gigabit. That's, that's worthy of a demonstration and a test or even a discussion with your, your friend. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to go over some practical what you can do kind of stuff you know well hold on let's get, let's get i want to find out what your opinion is on this uh integrated versus tog model what do you use what do i use yeah. I, t I tend to gravitate toward an integrated model with other togs as necessary to support certain functions and keep some of the clutter off the unified model i also believe in, in some of these 
Mikhail Yudushin used to work with us here at Skeleton Key, and a lot of the things that we do now um, ha- were born sort of uh, from some ideas that came up. And one of his mm-hmm. was some, and, and not all of them have we adopted, but a number we have. And uh, one of them had to do with the unified graph and naming conventions and sort of allowing yourself to be relaxed and about them. And uh, so we don't necessarily subscribe uh, as a whole to all of the, the rigorous naming conventions that the community might endorse as much as we do for stuff that makes sense to all humans. So, sure. you know, naming, it's more important that it's just consistent within the application and consistent within the applications in your company. But I think it would be good if there was a few that really emerged as really common amongst all FileMaker developers so that when we work on each other's systems, which we often do, and then for products, like if you buy FM search results, well, which is hardly has any relationships, but you know, other products like that, like FM Spark and other things like that, and you integrate them into your system, then all the, um, the methodologies they use are similar and familiar. I agree. That's a whole other topic. We could have another podcast. Yep. Uh, so my, said, olive branch, my olive branch, okay. I just want to say, was that I need to, you know, since this is only one piece of it, and, um, and, and at some point I'm going to talk about these different techniques and what they do, and then we're going to talk on the, in sort of the third quarter of my plan, the third bullet point on the, on the presentation uh, proposal was a checklist for giving your own applications a performance tune-up. What kinds of things can you do in most applications to get some quick, easy um, repair, and, and uh, you know, what kinds of things to look for in your data tables that might um, be uh, great opportunities to, uh, to separate and do a little tiering and narrowing um, and, and, I, and if there's something to offer there in terms of what you can do from a, a portal and relationship standpoint that can benefit both unified models as well as um, uh, anchor buoy or, or, or tog separated models, mm-hmm. verse, as opposed to just saying change what you've done. But how do I take an existing solution that's built one way because that's what the developer chose and get some benefits and squeeze some extra power out of it? Then I, I'll do my best to address um, what options might be low-hanging fruit there as well, if there is any. I'm not sure at that point when you're getting into that level that there's much that isn't core design approach. In, in which case, all yeah. I would say to people is, you know, um, I don't know, if you have an opportunity to, to do a simple um, mock-up of a solution and load it with sample data, um, and or have sample data laying around, like I don't know, a very large database, Matt, maybe, yeah, um, maybe something that was open source and publicly available. <laughs> uh, you know, if people could provide um, and help each other have these sort of resources that uh, that would allow us to test things quickly, you might be able to create a skeleton solution built anchor and a skeleton solution built tog and get some basic functionality and do a quick test to see if it scales and performs the way you think it will. Once you prove to yourself that you can build an either relational model or any relational model, I should say, and the system will test well under load, then I think you should definitely use whatever model is the most comfortable for you to develop in. If you're building in a model that for whatever reason for your type of customers and solutions isn't a good model, you should identify that too. And which model you use should be as uh, irrelevant until you've done those tests, period. It doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't stand, you know, I've got to develop this way. If it's sucking right. bandwidth and hurting your solutions, it's only in the long run going to bite you. Well, I think, you know, one, there, there's some low-hanging fruit. And, and uh, one area that I could think of off the top of my head is, in certain cases, use portal filters, and in other cases, don't. And specifically, uh, like, I have a lot of relationships that exist in my current database. And I think if you reduce the number of relationships, you're going to overall speed the solution, right? I would say in general that a smaller number of relationships means a smaller number of required caches and right. a likelihood that you'll be able to reuse caches. I mean, I probably have a thousand relationships in this big solution. But a lot of those are actually 
sort of parallel relationships for portals that have a filter that existed from before FileMaker 11's filtered portals. And so they would be like three different relationships that show records that are unprocessed, records that are processed, and records that are pending or something like that. And mm-hmm. so I had, a, I had, you know, simple little relationships that said, you know, the key equals the key plus pending equals one. I'd only ever really be looking at, you know, 50 or 100 records and never really a huge amount of records. So in those cases, I could delete those redundant relationships and use a filtered portal and, and, and be in good stead. Well, the thing where filtered portals will kill you, if you have a join that says, show me every single record in the table, but filter it by, based on this little calculation. And then you're looking at a table, you know, you'd have a portal that if you didn't have a filter would have 100,000 records in it. And, and in a table that has uh, record level security. When a user right. logs into that, they'll, they'll, it'll just die. Right, and I agree. And I'm sure there's a spectrum in there, right? Because right. there's there's the pure example, and then there's the extreme. And, and we've all seen, like you know, the navigational menu on the front of a sample file, which is like you know all customers, <laughs> you know, or all invoices. Yeah. And you filter it to say like just the open ones, but you know it could be all, and yeah. that's bad enough to get you the whole bamboom. Yeah, you can't uh, do it that way. So the key with the filtered portal is if you didn't have the filter applied, you must ensure that the number of records that that relationship would natively show would never be above, I don't know, I would say uh, 1,024. <laughs> and when you say show, I mean, it could show three, and it would be fine. Yeah, yeah. It's but just, I mean, Even if, if, there's a, if, if there's 997 rows I can't see, I don't care. What I care about is if you have a little number above it that says total in this portal, right. not, you know, 1,000, that's going to kill me right there. Yeah. So, uh, and, and again, I think on some level people know that, well, that summary is expensive. But do they understand why it's expensive? No, it just is. Oh, because it has to count up all the records. Well, yeah, but what if it's a really fast counter? Well, actually, it's how big are those records? If those records are really big, your thousand's going to suck. If your records are really small, that thousand might not be so bad. Yeah, that's true. So if it's uh, yeah, wide versus narrow table, huh? Yeah. So and, and, and it just keeps going. I think, I think these are the kinds of things that have very little to do with your particular design style and have a lot to do with how the tool at FileMaker Pro talks to the operating system, the networking card, and the client, and what those conversations look like. You can say it's chatty or it's port 5003 or whatever, but what, when is it verbose and when is it brief? Yep. One of my mantras is uh, fields are expensive, but tables are cheap. Yeah, I, I, that, sounds, that sounds zen. I need to think about it and figure out. And the, sort of the way I look at it is if a customer is sitting with me and they say, oh, yeah, I want to add this extra thing, I'll argue if they say I want to add one field to a table. But if they say, oh, I want to add this other table to do something, I'll just go in and add it without even thinking about it. Yeah, and I think that that sort of takes the, the concept of narrow tables to an extreme if you think about it. It mm-hmm. says I don't care how – it's it's actually not fields are expensive. It's fields per table are expensive. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. You can have a lot of tables with one field. That's fine. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a very particular approach. It almost sounds like, as I say it, the, the word, um, is it WordPress? Is that a blogging platform? Yeah, yeah I, I know that some databases like that out there, and I may be mischaracterizing them because I don't know a lot about them, but I've encountered a, a database like that recently that was very particulate. Uh, everything was sort of separate and floating and like a soup. Made me think of the Newton or something. And, uh, and, and all I could think was, um, you know, that's a very efficient design in many ways because you just select. In fact, one of the things I point out about the um, ESS, and I guess I'll have a chance in my FTS session on connectivity to, um, to talk about this, is going to be the, the fact that ESS by its very nature is, is somewhat more selective and narrow because ESS only um, selects the data 
that you uh, the rows and columns that you needed to display. It doesn't right. grab the whole record. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it up in a shooting match with FileMaker for a way to store your data somewhere outside because it's somehow more selective. But I think um, I'm sure there's other overhead that's, that wouldn't work at scale as well. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting notion that um, you don't have to do the same kind of uh, tune-up stuff necessarily in ESS setups. It's a different approach to tune-up then. Um, and that would be something I would turn to like my, my ESS experts on my team to say, let's find some tune-up corollaries over there. Um, in fact, that's probably a nice reminder for me to do that. Include so, that in my checklist as well. So speaking of ESS, uh, you're also going to be doing at DevCon, you're going to be doing an FTS session on ESS, right? Correct. They, they're doing a, a full track of, um, of the, uh, the FTS right. materials. I don't know if it's all the modules yet or if it's just uh, certain major uh, ones, uh, but the idea is that if you, you can, I think, join that track and effectively go through an FTS training course with some of the um, you know, best trainers in the country, including some FileMaker uh, engineers and system engineers as well. Let's see, you've also got an episode of Dan Weiss's podcast coming up, the Datasoft FileMaker podcast. You're going to be talking about version control. Correct. This is a, a topic um, that kind of gets back in some ways to the business of being a development company mm-hmm. um, uh, in the sort of off-topic session from earlier. But we, um, uh, that was another idea that Mikhail um, introduced to me a number of years ago. Um, and uh, I kicking and screaming was like, what? This is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. Um, uh, and... And then my eyes were opened, um, and I have now uh, then made that a standard for how we manage our development here. Um, and it really transformed the, the uh, infrastructure that was required for a distributed team of developers to work together and um, the ease with which we can uh, exchange information and uh, work with project managers or customers. Well, how do you actually do version control in FileMaker, not to get into your topic too deeply? Um, we use uh, Subversion, uh, which is one of the many different kinds of version control platforms available that are mm-hmm. open source and been out there forever. We use uh, free readers or versions, uh, a Mac app or a um, Turtle SVN on the Windows. But we use some kind of client application to, to interface with the version control. And really the difference for us, it, it boils down to that um, instead of having a, a folder on a server somewhere with a bunch of zipped up renamed archives of the different stages of our application or a bunch of copies of databases on my machine that are only on my machine and are difficult for me to easily hand to someone uh, if I'm not at my desk. Mm-hmm. We use version control and it's basically a, uh, an asset management system. It basically stores in a database on a server somewhere snapshots like Time Machine does for the Mac. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, snapshots of our development environment. Yeah, but which that's means the whole have, thing, right? It's the FileMaker database file maker has database. everything in it, yeah. Correct. Fortunately, i got a number of responses to that, many of which are going to come up, but, you know, there's some easy ones. Uh, FileMaker solutions are very rarely just a FileMaker file. They're usually a whole bunch of other stuff, source documents from the customer, plugins, uh, PHP code, uh, XML, uh, CSV and tab files, notes, uh, all kinds of stuff. All of Those which are, are independently versionable. Correct, mm-hmm. and, uh, and many of which can benefit from other things like merge and diff, things that version control can do. So FileMaker may be the whole sh- enchilada, but um, that's one thing it doesn't get benefit from. Mm-hmm. However, the benefit of working locally versus having to necessarily interact all the time with a server-based system, uh, which can get into performance issues and can get into remote control and oh, remote access issues. We're going to have another issues. religious discussion here. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> and the ease with which you can centralize the backup of this stuff for reliability, uh, the right. ease with which you can pass snapshots of the current system or go back like you would with Time Machine through the files to pick a right. version before any change are significantly easier than what I've often seen in my own experience, uh, which is a whole lot of zipped up files with date stamps on them, but no corollary to tell me what changed between this zip. 
Um, I'd have to open them up and compare them. To actually have a system that says version X and version Y, or version 1 and version 2, these three files were modified by this person and they right. were changed on this date. And then to be able to go back and sort of flip through and see, and then it changed here and then it changed here. That doesn't substitute for knowing what changed inside the file. There are ways to obviously do that. You could, yeah. you could do DDRs and compare, but more importantly, it creates accountability and, um, and it creates a single card catalog for us to use to match our development process on any given application. And it's all in one folder. You're dealing with one set of files. From your perspective, it looks like the same files over and over, just kind of evolving over time. Right. And it's uh, nice and clean. My two cents on it is I, I really like doing development whenever I can, especially on a system with multiple developers on a hosted database with a parallel copy in the separation model. So you've got all the development happening on a, on a file that's not the production file and relying heavily on scripts, which are inherently versionable. And if you're going to do a bunch of work on a script or if you've got a developer who's not really experienced, they make a copy of the script that does the work and do the work. And then you can copy and paste all of it into the live one or pieces and parts of it. And then every developer who works on it can put notes in and what they do so you can then see exactly what's done. It's not as easy as doing a diff and all the other real version control features that you'd get if you had 10 developers working on a big Objective-C project or something. But it gets you well down that road. Oh, I agree. And again, it's sort of like the OSI model. It's at one layer it does. In the FileMaker mm -hmm. environment it does. Right. It doesn't give you any of that. So the nice thing about what you just said is it's wholly compatible with using version control under that as well. There's no reason why that those files that are being backed up on the server into the backup folder can't be versioned off that backup folder into a standard repository. Yep. There's nothing that, you know, in fact, if I could ask for one feature from FileMaker, it would be the ability to script a DDR. Because if I could script a DDR and dump it out at the server level into the documents folder, which would just be going too far in my request, but just being able to script it would allow me to actually export even snapshots of the schema and the structure of the file in between mm. and get to your script diffs. But, you know, regardless, for me, it's just a matter of there's development level synchronization and development level orchestration of a team. And then there's business level, accountability level, um, uh, security level type considerations for your data bases that you develop for your customers as well. The source materials, the security of that material, the sample data that's in the system, the ability to quickly go back to a version and identify when it changed. If you don't have an underlying system of backups of some kind that are ironclad and in some way annotated behind your server-based system, mm -hmm. then as an IT perspective, as a company um, business continuity perspective, there's a piece that's missing that needs to be discussed and planned. And, and it doesn't matter, again, how you do it. Version control is one way. Um, there could be other ways. So we've taken it down to the, to the developer level because of the nature of our projects. I, I could very much see that we would incorporate it with server-based development if uh, certain projects that we had required it. But I wouldn't take version control off the table. If anything, my guys would take the clones and check them in at the end of the day's work just to make sure that there was a snapshot of that in the same kind of repository structure as we use now. Right. So I think they're wholly compatible uh, perspectives. They're at different levels of the process. I was talking to Todd Geist. He's got some really interesting ideas about this version control thing, too. I think he's also a big fan of subversion and, and storing pieces and parts of the FileMaker code, even, in a place where you can actually uh, version them all. That's and it a really makes it much easier idea. to borrow code from one project to another, too. That would be a very interesting idea to actually yes, to see documented snippets of, of, of scripts um, 
that are versioned if, as a code library. Yeah. We talk we talk a lot of here. Comes up, I'd say we shouldn't say we talk a lot. It comes up frequently in my development team that a code library of some kind could be beneficial, and, and what format should that code library take? And is it a repository, or is it a sample template, or is it a database like that holds that stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we've arrived at a final conclusion of any kind. Uh, put the code up on Google Code. Google has a site that can track code, stuff like that. You can keep it up there. Interesting. Well, again, and, and this is the thing I think that's interesting, too, about um, me is that I, I don't develop very often anymore. And I tell that to all the people I train. I spend a lot of time um, working with the tool for training and, and for being current on what it can do and, and working with the tool to create sample files and to, to, um, to brainstorm and work with my developers on what might work best in a particular environment or what a design might look like for a particular customer or did they try this um, and, and then I do some testing as well and project management, so I'm, I'm close to it that way. But mm. sitting back for eight hours a day or six hours a day uh, every day for a week and actually coding is something I haven't done for a long time. Um, so I do these other types of things to stay current with what works. And this is another reason I think I stay a little bit away of the how you're going to do that and much more about the, the building blocks that you're going to use to do it and whether those building blocks are an effective and efficient way to get it done. Um, if, is that the best naming convention for the field or the script, or should that be what you call your variables, or should that loop go there or be in a separate script? I have, I have less and less to say about that. You know, always have something to offer because as a, as a trainer and a, a long-term FileMaker developer, I do still work on our internal systems, and I still right. do pitch in now and then when someone's unavailable, but I'm not your full-time developer like I used to be. You know, so had, as a result, you know. I've had periods of time where I didn't do development all day every day, and those are the unhappy times in my life. So I've reconstructed my business lately to so that I, I'm, I'm in FileMaker all day every day, and I, I'm so happy there. Yeah, I, I, would, I would love to talk at some point about the challenge of, um, of being a creator in your own company. Um, I, I definitely create value for my customers, and I think yep. I definitely my consultation is useful to my um, employees and colleagues and, and, um, and customers as well. But and I know that some of that's billable, and, and that's great. Yep. Um, I'd like to be able to pitch it on that level. But I'm I don't know that I could give away the reins for running the ship and all the things that need to be done on the business side to make exactly. sure it goes well. My um, choice necessarily means that I can't really scale my company the way you've done. And you know, grass is greener. I'm looking at your company and wishing I had what what the success that you've achieved. Um, but on the other hand, I know how unhappy I would be if I didn't actually get to work with FileMaker every day. <laughs> I think, I think you can, I, I don't know. We, we can compare success offline. It's a, it's a, it means different things for different people. But, or a pause on error where we're both going to be in a, in a few right, weeks. That's great. That'd be a great idea. I'd love to talk about it. And uh, I'd say that um, you don't, you, you're not limited. There's probably ways that you can scale um, with, with partnering with the right uh, people or other people. Uh, in some form or another, or hiring someone to run the ship if you really wanted to do that. Right. That's definitely an offline topic for sure. Love to talk about it. Yeah. Well, actually, it might even be an interesting discussion in a future episode. That'd be great. Love well, Mark, to do it. Thanks very much for your time today. It was my pleasure, man. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you.